No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada. One rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. Raven is a registered charity with a mission to raise funds for Indigenous peoples' access to justice. Raven is guided by some of the most brilliant legal advisors in the country, and they work to enshrine environmental justice for all. The law is clearly on the side of Indigenous peoples, and the group believes that Indigenous victories protect all of us. Raven also has an educational arm with a series of 10 videos about Indigenous law and history. You can watch those for free. Andrea Palfreman is the Director of Communications with Raven. She is dedicated to making media that brings the strength of data together with the power of storytelling. She holds a Master's in Intercultural and International Communication. Her research focus, how Indigenous communities are responding to, resisting, and adapting to climate change, forms the underpinning of her understanding of environmental justice and human rights issues. She spent 10 years working in Sub-Saharan Africa as programs manager for Glass Waters Foundation, working with grassroots community leaders to bridge the digital divide. Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to find out about Raven. Welcome. Thanks so much, Shauna. It's always fun to have an opportunity to talk about something I'm really passionate about. But it's also really neat to be talking with people who live in small communities because I live in a community of 10,000 people. So I definitely know small towns. Absolutely. So, well, tell us where you live. Yeah, I live on Salt Spring Island, which is out on the West Coast, 
kind of past the West Coast, really, between Vancouver and Victoria. It's kind of a funny community because, you know, people know it for its resortness. But in fact, it's a, quite a normal community <laughs> with 10,000 people of all walks of life. There are Indigenous people that live on the island and the community itself, the community is the traditional territory of the Halkominim speaking peoples. So there's actually four or five different nations that used Salt Spring Island as a place to harvest, to have villages, to you know, raise their kids and fish for salmon and do all the things that make us human. So there is a rich and, and long, long Indigenous history where I live that is just now coming to the consciousness of settlers like myself. And me as well. Can you tell us what Raven is and, and what it stands for? Raven, like the bird, stands for respecting Aboriginal values and environmental needs. So the organization came about 14 years ago, essentially is a response to this lopsided situation we have in Canada, where when there's a dispute over land and the use of land or who owns the land, generally the government of Canada and the provincial governments can use taxpayer dollars to argue their case in court, whereas Indigenous peoples haven't got the same resources to draw on. So on their own dime, they were meeting these deep-pocketed governments and also corporations to argue land claims and, and land use jurisdiction issues. And the playing field was just so slanted that what, what kept happening is that Indigenous nations would have to uh, abandon their litigation partway through. And that's not fair. <laughs> and so just in the pure interest of access to justice, a coalition of people formed around, hey, well, what if ordinary people were able to somehow donate to support Indigenous nations who were in court, especially when they're in court to protect water that, say, is the aquifer for like non-Indigenous communities as well? What if, what if they're in court to protect coastal rainforests? or you know, large tracts of land that would otherwise be developed for mining or oil and gas. And so that's kind of how Raven came to exist. And we chose the, the word Raven because, you know, the organization was founded in Victoria, BC, and a lot of Northwest Coast nations really see the Raven as this kind of trickster character. And the trickster character not only kind of does jobs that no one wants to do, also is like a massive transformer of taking things that are discarded and overlooked and spinning into gold. So that's kind of where Raven comes into. It's the trickster spirit that says, even though we're just a ragtag bunch of individuals, when we join forces, we actually can have the power to really transform the landscape and make life better for future generations. So you are an organization that helps fundraise. So you're kind of an in-between uh, indigenous communities come to you and then you then help them fundraise. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we essentially raise funds on their behalf. So we make these partnerships with nations, they apply and we don't have a millions of dollars sitting in a pot that we hand out. <laughs> We're more like fundraisers. So a nation will come, and I'll just use this as an example. For instance, um, we had a campaign called Pull Together, and six different nations were working together uh, sort of to common purpose around protecting the Great Bear Rainforest and West Coast 
ecosystems from oil and gas development. And so they came to us and said, we would like you to help us raise money for this court case. It's going to cost millions of dollars. And we turned around and reached out to just ordinary people. And our campaign was called Pull Together. And we said, hey, do what you love to protect where you live. And people had all these little fundraisers, like they had clothing swaps and they had drag shows and they did ice cream sales and they had concerts and rock shows and, you know, hundreds of really cool little events. So not only did it kind of build community and bring people together, but all of those events raised in the end nearly a million dollars. And we did manage to uh, support the nations in court to stop the Northern Gateway Pipeline. You know, we have the conversation like, well, I can see the inequalities and I feel really terrible about what happened with residential schools. And I know I should be doing something to make relationships better with Indigenous peoples. But like, how and what do I do? And Raven is one thing that ordinary people have really embraced as, oh, right. Well, this is just like making the playing field level. This is just making things fair. So, yeah, I'll step up and donate or fundraise or organize an event. Have there been any recent cases that you're working on right now that we like we've seen a lot in Ontario? There's been a lot in the news, I would say, and, and out west as well. But, you know, are are there some that are you're working behind the scenes right now? Yeah, actually, we're very, very excited because we have a brand new campaign that brings together eight Ontario nations under the banner, Protect the Breathing Lands. And so many people are familiar with the Ring of Fire, which is uh, an attempt to open up Northern Ontario to mining interests. And it's fiendishly complex. And at the same time, there are glittering prizes laying beneath the peatlands, which are also home to many, many First Nations who have worked tirelessly to have more of a say in the way that their territories are developed. So Raven is joining forces with Attawapiskat and seven other nations who are being joined under a single legal challenge to push back against the um, Ford government's haste to develop the Ring of Fire. And the key word here is haste. I mean, Ford said, if I have to jump on the bulldozer myself, I'm going to get the road built to the Ring of Fire. And really, that is not the greatest place to begin negotiations with nations who have conducted like multi-year environmental studies to better understand the potential impacts of industry in their territories, who have lived under boil watery advisories, who have lived with uh, terrible COVID impacts who have been repeatedly evacuated some of these communities. They have not been in the greatest position to negotiate, period, and then to hastily um, push these projects through is really actually, frankly, unconstitutional. You know, Canada has a constitutional requirement, Section 35, that was hard won, you know, thanks to Indigenous activists, that requires that Indigenous people be meaningfully consulted on anything that will take place in their territories. And that doesn't matter if there's a treaty in place or whether it's so-called crown land. Uh, if Indigenous peoples are there and they are everywhere, they need to have a say at the very least. And 
what the nations of the Breathing Land Alliance want is really co-jurisdiction. This is what they understood the treaties to be in the beginning. There was no sense when they signed Treaty 9 in the early 1900s. The Crown has a different interpretation than First Nations. In terms of what was meant by the signing of the treaty, and importantly, the Breathing Land Nations case hinges that they understood that the treaty was to mean co-jurisdiction. They were not giving up or surrendering their lands. And so the case is very complex and really interesting to legal scholars, but I think also really interesting to ordinary Canadians who are trying to understand, well, if we have these treaty relationships with, with First Nations, like what's our end of the bargain? You know, what's my responsibility? Because for a really long time, we didn't really think of treaties in terms of responsibility. We thought of them in terms of entitlement. And it turns out that that's really caused a lot of problems to Indigenous nations. And, you know, it's not my place to list all of the woes and challenges, you know, as a settler, as somebody whose ancestors came here from Europe, you know, four generations ago, I am just in the process of unlearning the colonial mindset that was taught to me in school. And my place, I think, is to look to Indigenous strength and really shine a light on that. And boy, is it ever easy to find, you know, there's just incredible people involved in these legal challenges. It's hugely inspiring and the stamina and sort of force of faith, if I can say, the force of belief uh, and, and like the deep wells of spirit and uh, law, but like indigenous law that are being drawn on in order to sustain these challenges is just like wondrous and awe-inspiring. So I think my place is to to point to that, but at the same time, we can't ignore the horrible relationships and, and terrible history that we all are carrying now. Now we're all, <laughs> if, you, if you're here on these lands, you're part of a messy, broken promises and the aftermath of genocide. And, you know, we look around and we say, well... What can we do? And and I think rather than feel terrible, crippling shame, there are actually things that we can do. And it's very clear, Indigenous people are very clearly saying, you can help us in these particular ways. So I feel super grateful to be involved with Raven because I have an outlet for uh, reconciliation in my own personal life that is rich and deep and hopefully impactful. And so how can other folks get involved? I understand what you're saying as a settler myself, and many, many settlers live in rural and remote Canada and are equally just discovering their colonial past and the responsibility that we carry from our ancestors. And you're right, there is a lot of shame attached to it, but we need to turn that shame into something positive and something productive and share the share the load of what indigenous people have been carrying for eons and this is a chance for us to step up so what what can people do thanks i mean you have such a good understanding of that equation you put it really well thanks shauna 
really, when it comes to the Breathing Lens campaign, Raven is inviting people to donate to support the legal challenge. And a win for the nations in the Breathing Land is really a win for all of us, because it means that the development that takes place in the so-called Ring of Fire is done in a way that honors Indigenous stewardship values. So whether you can give $20 or $200, donations are tax deductible, and they go directly to the nation. So Raven doesn't take you know, a large percentage to feed ourselves. We really, that's the way our partnerships work. We, we give the money where it's needed so that nations can sustain long-term legal challenges. And, you know, these challenges don't just serve the nation in that moment. The way that the legal system works is there are these legal precedents that are cited in cases. And so you essentially are creating a new legal precedent for the next nation to stand upon. And since because a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, up until the 1950s, it was actually illegal for an Indigenous person to hire a lawyer. It would be fined. So they could not hire legal counsel, and they could also not study law without losing their Indigenous status. Until the 50s. And so it's only since then that Indigenous people have had access to the courts, like, period, at all, when they can afford it. And since then, they've been on an incredible winning streak. There have been winning case after case, and there's been incredible activism. It's, you know, they changed the constitution and added section 35. That was thanks to, you know, huge uh, indigenous activism in a movement called the Constitution Express. There have been numerous breakthrough cases like the Chilcotin challenge, which established indigenous title to unceded lands for the very first time. And that's a precedent that many other nations are looking to as they seek to establish title as well. Um, and then, of course, there are cases that have protected very specific areas that are really near and dear to, to many people. They've stopped pipelines, pushed back against open pit mines. One of Raven's cases in the Yukon protected hundreds of thousands of hectares of beautiful watersheds. So um, these cases are are snowballing is a word that I would want to use, but it's it's really just there's this like this huge momentum because one case actually feeds the next case. I think of the metaphor that's often used in indigenous law where it's all about like ancestral knowledge, but also thinking seven generations forward. And even though our legal system is about as colonial as it gets with the gowns and the gavels, we also have something along those lines. Everything that we do in the present is to serve the future. And so I see the legal system actually as a tool for healing. There will be people, and, and we already know this, in, in rural and remote communities that live in fear that just because Indigenous folks are fighting to keep title and get the respect of the treaty that is actually in place, that they're somehow losing something. And what do you have to say about that? We spent a lot of time trying to not just ignore, but stamp out Indigenous knowledge. Like settlers came to this country and at first there were some really productive and good relationships. But as some of the more ideologues came to power, the project became not just assimilation, but cultural annihilation. The saying 
with the residential school system was to kill the Indian in the child. So very, very few other places on earth have colonial projects attempted to utterly remove culture. So what did we lose in that? We lost languages that had this ecological understanding of a place where you know, we live now. We actually live in this place called Canada, wherever you are. Indigenous understanding of the plants, the soils, the motion of the water, the weather, um, the behavior of animals, the migration of birds is incredibly deep. It's still incredibly deep, even though generations of colonialists attempted to stamp out that knowledge. That tells us like a lot about who we are and where we are. And it also teaches us a lot about how we can survive in this place. You know, we sort of in the West are a little bit separate from our environment. And obviously rural people are a lot closer because we are, because we have gardens, you know, because we go for walks and because we love the land. And so what we stand to gain, let's think about it that way. It's not that we will lose when Indigenous people's sovereignty rises, we'll actually gain this like deeper understanding that kept the land in a really good way for tens of thousands of years. You know, systems of governance and systems of law that were really all about sustainability. Isn't that what we need right now? <laughs> you know, I mean, people may disagree that we're in a climate emergency, but I think reality and experience bears us out. I live in British Columbia. The wildfires are absolutely horrifying. And when you look at indigenous ways of maintaining forests that are actually now coming back to the fore because people are realizing, oh, these guys really knew what they were doing when they would selectively burn underbrush and make sure to manage these forests in a way that stopped catastrophic fires from happening. So you kind of see that dynamic of the mismanagement of people who are newcomers to land and who are imposing systems that come from somewhere else. Well, what if they actually started to talk to and take direction from and collaborate with people who really have this very deep knowledge, very, very deep knowledge that is rooted in a sense of, hey, we want this to be kept in a good way for seven generations forward. It's not just about me here. It's about my grandchildren's 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 grandchildren. So that to me is like a huge gift and the learning that I get from Indigenous people when they're gracious enough to slow down and, and patient enough with me to explain is a, a huge gift. It teaches me so much about being human and, and about where I am in the world and on earth. So yes, there may be changes and maybe your job will look different, but there will certainly be not just on a knowledge level, but I think on a cultural level, like a sense of uh, peace and understanding that we really don't have right now when we see each other with that kind of fearful lens, when we see each other with that othering lens. And it's it's not our fault. This is something we inherited. You can't other someone more severely than to round them up and stick them on a reserve, <laughs> you know, and say, you actually need a pass to come and go from this community. Like that is isolation. And we did that on purpose. And it's going to take a while for us to be able to flow back and forth between our, our communities and have dinner at each other's tables. But I think the invitation is starting to be there. And I hope people take it because, boy, it sure opens you up.
Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree. One of the arms, a new arm of Raven is an educational piece. Speaking about teaching and learning, can you talk a little bit about Raven's education arm and and some of the really cool stuff that you have going on? Thank you. I would sure love to. This is really, really close to my heart. A few years ago, we were kind of looking at this explosion of interest in Indigenous rights. And, you know, there had had been this reconciliation walk in Vancouver where 50,000 people came out and marched together. And it was just like this renaissance nearly of of interest and, and curiosity. And we looked around at the different kind of educational platforms that were out there. And there were there were some trying to like sincerely and earnestly teach settlers about our history not from an Indigenous point of view, but just considering Indigenous points of view in the telling. And they were all pretty serious, and some of them were quite academic. And I know uh, a bunch of Indigenous people, and they're really funny. (laughs) They're like really teasing and joking people. There's quite a lot of absurdities in the way colonialism has operated. And, you know, if if, if you don't laugh, you cry. So there's a lot of laughing. And there's a lot of teasing also of, you know, the pieties, I guess, around settlers who are sort of born again and want to be good and come with very sincere questions. And, you know, it can it can just feel a little pious is the word I'll use. We thought, well, what if we got like a comedian to teach people this stuff? <laughs> what if we took someone who was just uh, loose and funny and a, and a great host and paired them with the smartest Indigenous people we can think of? And actually dig into these topics in more of a conversation across a table way, as opposed to a kind of lecture or reading kind of way. And so we did that. And we sort of called it Ask Smart People Stupid Questions. <laughs> and we called it Home on Native Land. And so the result of that is this 10-part video series that you can get online at homeonnativeland.com. Uh, you sign up for it. It's free. Uh, each unit takes about 20 minutes. and they consist of a video of these great conversations and then a little bit of a written portion that just like looks at, well, what is the history? And there's a section on the doctrine of discovery. There's a section on treaty rights. There's a section on uh, modern day treaty making, a section on the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples. So, you know, relevant and also there's cartoons. So for every section, there's this sort of editorial style cartoon where um, we essentially just take something like, for instance, the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a papal bull that essentially legitimized the seizure of lands from Indigenous people based on the idea that they weren't really human. And so they didn't really own land. They couldn't really they couldn't really own the land because they weren't using it in a way that Christians considered um proper. So the cartoon has this guy and he's an indigenous guy and he's coming out of his house and he's got his car keys in his hand. And he sees this white guy getting into his car. And he's like, uh, excuse me, that's my car. The guy's like, oh no, it's it's not your car, it's mine by right of discovery. You know, like that kind of thing. Just just using metaphors and, and jokes to get the point across. And I think it's a lot easier for people to have conversations about this stuff when they can joke and when they can sort of 
50 examples of how these conversations could be modeled because it's scary. It's scary to bring it up at the dinner table. It's scary to challenge your uncle who might be saying something that you consider somewhat racist or just like misinformation. It's hard to speak up. So the idea of home on native land is to make it easier to have these conversations and to just give people like simple, clear facts about what indigenous law has been in the past, what Canadian law has been, and then maybe what some of the possibilities are out of those absurdities. And I think Ryan McMahon is the narrator. Is that right? He's the host. He's the one asking the stupid question. <laughs> A very brilliant human, of course. But uh, in, in this context, essentially, he plays the, the the hapless listener who's really just trying to get a handle on this stuff without having to have a law degree, you know, and also without it having to be so serious. I think it's incredible timing that Julie Black changed the words of the national anthem to home on native land. And that's the name of your series. You know, it's interesting because since we launched, a bunch of people have come to us and said, hey, I've got a thing called home on native land. You know, there was a woman called Delay Nicole who she'd done some teaching to unions using home on native land as her title. Different people have written to us and said, because we have a petition up now that is urging Canada to change, officially change the lyrics of Oh Canada. People have reached out and said, I've been trying to do this for years, or I've been singing these lyrics this way for years. So it is definitely, you know, on the vanguard or in the Zeke East or whatever you want to call it. I think people are ready for it. Yeah. But I, I think they're also ready to kind of move beyond the like, how can I be correct in this and start to think about, well, how can I make this like genuine for me and like make it part of my life, not just part of how I present myself, but actually how I, you know, live. So I know this is a tough question, but what is Raven's thoughts for the future. I don't want to say seven generation plan because that's a really difficult question, but uh, what are, you know, some of the things that Raven is working towards? What's the ultimate goal? We're launching this year something called the Court Processes Fund, which actually we're going to call it something like feathering the nest because it's a nicer way of talking about it. But, you know, when nations go to court, um, they have to leave their home communities and go to the big city usually. And oftentimes that means that people who are testifying have to be away from home and they're often elders and they're not always super comfortable. And the nation really struggles actually to pay for accommodation and look after those folks. And so the Feathering the Nest Fund will support people sort of around the court experience so uh, just to make it easier for nations to participate and to make it more inclusive to, so that people can you know, explain to the rest of the community like what's actually happening in court, where they have the time and resources to do some of that work. So that's really exciting. Another piece, which it's got a very loyally name, is called Amicus Brief, but it actually means a friend of the court. And so when you're doing a court challenge uh, on a shoestring, like all nations are, you really have to be careful and thoughtful about and strategic about what pieces of evidence you're going to craft and bring before the courts. And so oftentimes you're really looking at like environmental impact assessments and expert reports, very particular data, 
and you know the data can be drawn from indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, stories as well as Western science. But you know at the end of the day, these are these expert reports are kind of the bread and butter of a lot of the cases. An amicus brief is something that can be brought in on top of that. Our amicus brief fund will be for nations to prepare essentially a, a statement or do research and then present it to the court that describes the indigenous laws. So these are like laws that predate colonial law that have been in place for thousands of years, usually, that have a bearing on a particular case. So the nation doesn't even have to be the ones bringing the case. It could be any case. It could be a case about constitutional rights in, a, in another matter entirely. The Amicus Brief Fund will allow nations to kind of craft a legal argument and bring before the court this friend of the court statement that illuminates the Indigenous perspective on anything, on any matter that's in front of the courts. And what that does, in addition to illuminating that particular case, it revitalizes the Indigenous legal frameworks because it gives Indigenous people the money to go around and interview elders and work with youth and work with lawyers and work with law students to actually like articulate their laws in a manner that is suitable for the colonial courts to begin to be able to understand and actually work with these frameworks. And so it's a way of advancing Indigenous law. As much as Indigenous law is legitimate and it exists and it's strong and it's adhered to and, you know, it's the basis of many systems of government uh, in Canada, Indigenous systems of government, it's not well understood by outsiders. And it certainly isn't considered when somebody's saying, you know, where am I going to put this highway? So having it sort of in the colonial system, having it on the public record in that way is it's an advantage for people for whom those laws are their integral way of being in the world. Because it says, hey, and it makes it perfectly clear that this colonial system, this crown system is not the only framework to be considering here. This is a braiding of traditions. You know, that's what the treaties were about. And that's kind of what our future really looks like. So, you know, you asked about, well, what's Raven's ultimate vision? And it is, it is this stronger cord that brings together traditions. And I would say new Canadians and people who've come to this country from elsewhere are a third incredibly strong cord on that braid. You know, and we have things like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We have these things that bring us to this common denominator and common ground. Wonderful important. We also have these sort of enhanced extra things that these, you know, different groups bring. So yes, settlers bring something, new Canadians bring something, indigenous people bring something, and it's like the braiding of these different traditions that I think makes uh, a backbone for the future, a kind of way forward that is much more interesting than the idea of uh, homogeny that our forefathers imagined for the country. I mean, thank goodness that vision is is dead. That is beautiful. That braiding together of the cords through uh, different peoples is stunning. I, I just think that's a gorgeous explanation. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Anything else you'd like folks to know about Raven and, and the things that uh, you do? Our strength is in the grassroots and in the movement building of, of working with people who essentially volunteer or, you know, pitch in their spare money or their spare time. There's actually a way to participate kind of no matter 
where you stand, whether you have the ability to become, say, a monthly donor, or you're a coder and you want to volunteer, we can, we can use some of that. Whether you're somebody who already kind of does stuff, like you have a book club, or you get together with a bunch of ladies and you knit, well, you could turn that into a, a, a Raven fundraiser. So the world seems like pretty overwhelming, and the problems that face communities are big. The problems that face countries are big. The problems that face a planet are big. And it can feel so overwhelming. We nearly kind of talk ourselves out of our power. You know, it becomes, well, I can't really make a difference with all that. And I think that's like the biggest lie that we're sold as as particularly Canadians. Because, boy, we're like the wealthiest, most secure. And I'm not saying that everybody is wealthy by Canadian standards, but we have a pretty good foundation under our feet to reach out and look after our neighbors and help each other. And I would even argue that even if you're not doing so great, reaching out and helping other people is maybe a great lifeline. So having said that, you know, I think everybody can do a little something. And I do think that it can be of value not only to the person you're helping, but to yourself. I mean, my life has been immeasurably enriched by doing this work. And I feel incredibly lucky and honored to, to be able to know the people that I've come to know through this work. So if there's anything that you're already involved in, there's probably a way to connect it to Raven in some way. And I encourage you to reach out. Our website is raventrust.com. You know, we have an upcoming campaign launch in Ontario called the Breathing Land campaign. And if you're in that part of the country, really, really check it out because a win for nations in, in that case will, will really be a win for all of our grandchildren and their children and their children. And I really believe that those kids have a future in this world and it's kind of up to us to make sure of it. What a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much, Andrea. I, uh, I hope that we get to check in again. Uh, very excited for you in this campaign. Thank you so much, Shauna. And I just love that this is being beamed out to all these little beautiful towns all across the country. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware, First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 